Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from On the Media, Rachel Maddow, The Young Turks, and Al Franken. said sunlight is the best disinfectant, served in Congress from 1953 until 1978, Frank Silby went to work for him in 72, and he says Moss's passion made him an irresistible force. Well, (laughs) he was a stormy petrel in a lot of ways. He had a temper, and he had a very strong sense of ethics. Ralph Nader once called him the best single member of the House. As a result of the respect he had earned in the private sector and in the government and among Republicans and conservatives, as well as Democrats and liberals, he could muster enough political clout to strengthen the law and to prevent attempts to weaken it. Now, as this legislation was being drawn up in 1966, was Mr. Moss aware, were you all aware that it still lacked teeth, that in the 70s you were going to have to go back and make it stronger? Absolutely. And in fact, uh, he always spoke about that. And he was always unhappy over the number of exceptions to the law behind which people who had something to hide could conceal documentation. So John Moss was a leader in oversight and investigation, and that's where you came in. What precisely was your job? I was his chief of investigations, if you will. The guys that I worked with were, many of them, head and shoulders above me. They had courage because oversight is a thankless persuasion. You're kicking sacred cows. You're offending other members because you're looking at the programs that they have a vested interest in concealing any abuses uh, that afflict them. It's confrontational. It's occasionally ugly. But the results can be magnificent in the public interest. And Mr. Moss was key because you're only as good as the willingness of your chairman to back you up. I had no real power except through him. People would come to me, whistleblowers, and bootleg documents to me, and I would show them to the chairman. We would then demand other documents. We would subpoena them if necessary. Then we would hold hearings, and those hearings were extremely powerful because we had a working relationship with most investigative reporters in Washington. There are scandals galore in these federal agencies. They're lying around like stones on a beach. But there isn't a John Moss around with a team of probers and investigators who can lateral off to some great investigative reporters that can blow these stories. So now it's 40 years after the bill has passed, and we know the strength of FOIA ebbs and flows with the Times and with the various administrations, but it still works as a basic tool, right? Yes, it does. In fact, it works even on a local level. Uh, I have a home in Palm Beach, Florida. There is a coalition of community groups. Development is, of course, a major issue uh, down here. And these people think that the city fathers are too favorable to too much growth. And they want to ask questions. And so far, the city has not been forthcoming. I advise them on a pro bono basis. And I told them about the Freedom of Information Act. And uh, like Paul on the road to Damascus, (laughs) lo and behold, they have seen a great and blinding light. And in this case, they're starting to write these letters. And all of a sudden, there is discomfiture at City Hall. 
Are you saying they got the information they requested through FOIA? They're starting to get it. They haven't gotten all of it, but they're starting to, to use their opposition through FOIA in a more effective fashion. This law applies on every level. It is about as critical to a democracy as anything else I can think of, the right to find out what your government is doing in your name and with your resources. That really is everything that it is all about. And that understanding of what our institutions are and what our rights are will make a new generation rise in defense of those rights, embodied in part by the Freedom of Information Act and the example that Mr. Moss set. Maybe I'm dreaming, but I'm still an optimist. All right. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure, Miss. Frank Silby serves on the board of the John E. Moss Foundation and runs two companies specializing in congressional and federal investigations. FOIA may be a useful tool, but it can be hard to master. The National Security Archive, an independent governmental research institute, has filed tens of thousands of FOIA requests, so we challenge the NSA's Barbara Elias to tell us how to do it in two minutes or less. The government agency is not going to care why you want the material. In fact, if they do care why you want the material, then you should be concerned. You do need to explain a little bit about who you are just so they can categorize you as far as fees are concerned. Clarify if you are a graduate student and therefore you are eligible for an educational requester status or if you are a member of the news media and therefore deserve that processing fee. Most people, most average citizen will fall into what's called the all other category. And that gives you two hours free search and review time and a hundred pages free. So usually your request, as long as it's under a hundred pages, will be processed without charge. You want to limit how much paper you're asking for, because the more you ask for, the longer it's going to take. For example, asking the Pentagon for all documents they have on Abu Ghraib is an unreasonably large request. I mean, that's just not a request that they could process. So find out exactly the name of a report on Abu Ghraib that you're interested in. Ask for that. A part of that, too, is, is understanding which agency is going to control the documents that you're asking for. The Department of Defense cannot release State Department material. You need to go directly to the State Department. Once you've submitted your request, delay is inevitable, especially if you're asking for documents that require any kind of declassification review. So sometimes the, or frequently, in fact, the FOIA officer at the agency can be your best friend in this process. And I think it's really important to call them and to really, you know, negotiate the request with them to say, what are the stumbling blocks? blocks on it because this really seems reasonable to me. What is your perspective on it? If the documents are excised or if they've been withheld, you can file an appeal, which will kick the review up to a higher level in the government agency so you have more senior people reviewing your material. One minute and 53 seconds. Not bad. Oh boy, how have you been thinking about Sundays With all of my reasons slipping back down the line Running in circles with you on my mind Which one?
those are some of the stories that are making headlines around the country and around the world this morning. But every day here on The Rachel Maddow Show, we do enjoy poking a sharp stick at the soft white underbelly of the right-wing scheme machine, giving you a little peek at their political playbook. Today's underbelly political tactic is secrecy, reflexive secrecy, secrecy for secrecy's sake. Uh, This week marks the 40th anniversary of one of my favorite American laws of all time, the Freedom of Information Act, signed federally in 1966. All the 50 states and the federal government have these sunshine laws that allow reporters and citizens access to government meetings and government records through FOIA requests, uh, through Freedom of Information Act requests. Remember when we did our how-to on how to file a Freedom of Information Act request? We should do that again sometime. Uh, Anyway, happy birthday. Happy 40th birthday to FOIA. How is the Bush administration celebrating the 40th birthday of FOIA, of the Freedom of Information Act? They're giving it the worst birthday present ever. The Bush administration, starting this month, will pay a Texas law school, the St. Mary's University School of Law in San Antonio, they will pay them a million bucks to research ways to keep more information from the public and from the press. The law school will get a million dollars to analyze recent state laws on access to information. Then they're supposed to produce a model statute for state legislatures and the federal government to use to restrict access for the public to government information. So just to recap, they're using public money, our money, money you pay in taxes. They're using our money to research new and innovative ways to keep more information from us. They think it is the Freedom from Information Act. Uh, The the Bush administration is so secretive, not because of some magical effect that secrecy has on how safe we are, even though they try to create this connection that somehow secrecy always equals safety. They're secretive reflexively, regardless of the relationship between secrecy and safety, because even when secrecy provides no additional safety, when it doesn't make us any more secure, it always makes them less accountable. It's far easier to have an argument about uh, port security, say, or, or funding for first responders, or locking up loose nuclear material, or, 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 or looking for Osama bin Laden, say, or something actually related to keeping this country safe. It's far easier to have an argument about things related to keeping this country safe. For them, it's much easier if all the information about those things is secret. The NSA spying program, is it effective? Who knows? It's secret. The financial tracking program, is it effective? Who knows? It's secret, and you're treasonous for even asking about it. Reflexive secrecy has nothing to do with national security. It has everything to do with job security for the guys who are screwing up and not doing any of the things they're supposed to be doing to actually keep the country safe. So happy birthday to the Freedom of Information Act. I have to say that um, I'm sorry that they're getting a, the Freedom of Information Act is getting a lump of coal as a president from the Bushies. But hopefully uh, once they are pushed out of office, there will be some return uh, to openness as a theme in government rather than reflexive secrecy. Kick it down I will be single again But it won't matter If you're in Sitting by train track Looking here Looking back Green-eyed girl came up to me She said she was Wondering 
Why the trains would never go Are the ones we're waiting for here we go, Senator Leahy talking to somebody from the Justice Department about what the president can and can't do at Guantanamo Bay. The, the Hamden decision, Senator, does implicitly recognize that we're in a war, that the president's war powers were triggered by the attacks on the country, and that law of war paradigm applies. That's what the whole the whole case was yeah, I don't think the president was talking about the nuances of the law of war paradigm. He was saying this was going to tell him whether he could keep Guantanamo open or not after what he said he said he could. Well it's it, not, was the president right or was he wrong? It's under the law of war. Was the president we, right or we was he wrong? The president is always right. Yeah. Well you Okay. First of all, I got to say that clip was longer uh, originally, and I and earlier, you know, Leahy goes on and on about. It. He's like, "Who gave him this cockamamie idea? Was it you?" <laughs> okay, <laughs> and he's the guy. This guy's like, "Ah, oh, no, I don't. It's my business not to give the cockamamie ideas." They uh, repeated cockamamie. He did. Yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> uh, but anyway, in this piece, my favorite part of that, of course, is the ending where he's like, "The president is always right." <laughs> I guess that's what they teach in the administration these days. Well, yeah, it's worked. Because you know, they only have people that say those things. Could you imagine if under the Clinton uh, administration, uh, Janet Reno's people at the Justice Department went to the Senate and said, the president is always right. There would you, there would have been Waco too. The Senate would have been on fire. They would have been like, how could you say that? We told you Janet Reno isn't independent of Clinton. She's just a lackey. This is unacceptable. We have to have a Justice Department that's going to keep the president in check. Burn the building. But everything's bizarre world these days. I mean, now they criticize us for you know saying things that the president is incompetent. I mean, do you remember the things they said about Bill Clinton? Oh God. Do you remember the names they called him? Oh God. And they get mad at us for tarnishing you know the, the good name of the <laughs> and all that stuff. And, you know, it's like nobody's allowed to disagree with the president. And, you know, now the Republicans all, as you say, like walk right in line behind him. And, you know, of course, if they did that back in, you know, the 90s, it, it would have been awful. The president is always right. <laughs> it's true. I mean, there it is in a sentence. Yeah, right there. That encapsulates because it's not just something that's funny or wrong or political or this or that. It really it indicates how they're thinking. And their ideology at the Justice Department is the president is always right, so we have to adjust the law to fit what the president is saying. Is that Not that the president has to uh, adjust what he's doing to fit the law. And that is an enormous difference. Is that any president or just this president or any Republican president? You know what? No, that, I'm curious. It really seems like just this president. Just this yeah. one. I mean, Because he's so brilliant, you know? I love that George Bush is smarter than the Constitution. Can I tell you something, Jill? I think, once again, you've stumbled upon the truth. <laughs> I love doing that, D. I'm just playing with you, baby. Seriously, you make a great, great point. I wish Senator Leahy had followed up with a Jill Pike question of, so is it your opinion at the Justice Department that all presidents are always right? Or is it just that this one is sent by God himself, and so he's always right, and he's above the law? Because if every president is always right, I can't wait to see your ass again when we get a Democratic president. Right, and if that's the case, let's just get rid of Congress. Let's just get rid of, I mean, <laughs> the Justice Department. Let's just get rid of it all. Supreme Court, done. We don't need you anymore because the president can make up his mind. We have a dictator. 
Look, you know, when Jill says that, some, you know, right-wing people listening, they drive off the road, how could they say that? Right, okay, that's fine. But you know who else is saying it? Sandra Day O'Connor, appointed by Ronald Reagan, the deciding vote that put George W. Bush into office, uh, as conservative as it gets, and she said after leaving... We are, you know, we have to wor- be worried about slipping into a dictatorship. We have to avoid those beginnings so that we avoid those ends. This is a real problem. And Senator Leahy is right to throw around the word cockamamie and right to challenge these guys because if, look, somebody's got to get out ahead of this thing. These guys think that the president is above the law. They literally believe that, and it is unacceptable. It is undemocratic. And I'll tell you, most of all, they throw this word around a lot. But it really, I mean, it's ironic because it should be thrown right back at them because they're the most guilty of this. They are un-American. All I have to say is F-9-11. Somebody just brought up a you know, point in the chat room that, well, it's 9-11 that changed everything. I mean, you know, saying that, not agreeing with, with that way of thinking. But, yeah, 9-11 changed everything. Yeah. And that's why now the president's always right. I was having lunch today with somebody. And, uh, we, you know, he's very, very conservative, and I'm not. And so we were kind of batting back and forth. And he said to me, he's like, you know, the problem with, you know, these Democrats when they get elected, you know, it's like this one guy, you know, said he wasn't going to raise taxes, and now he just raised the sales tax, you know. And it's like the Republicans don't do that. And I said, I'm sorry. I said, didn't George Bush say he wouldn't participate in any nation building? I mean, that was like the big thing that he campaigned with. And he's like. Great point. And he's like, that was before 9-11. Oh, I see. Okay. And I and I couldn't even begin to have the argument because I adore this man. Um, so I didn't w- want to destroy him. But it's like that's the answer to everything. That is the go-to answer. 9/11. 9/11. It changed everything. America will never be the same after 9/11. And you know, and he had he's slightly right about nation building to a degree. No. And that no no. He was wrong from the beginning. What? No, no, no. I mean, sometimes we need nations. Well, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Is, is I was talking about Jill's friend, not the president. Is is that sometimes you do need nation building, and sometimes after a war, uh, nation building is called for. And and I mean, I, look, great irony. I just you know, Al Gore was the first Democrat I ever voted for in my life, and one of the reasons, one of the two main reasons, was because I thought George Bush's foreign policy stances were comical and shallow and not right. And one of the ones I disagreed with was. When he said, ha, can't do nation building. No, sometimes you got to do nation building. But you got to be smart enough to know when it makes sense and when it doesn't make sense. But what the Republicans campaign on is how they rule. They never change their minds, ever. Yeah, exactly. Ever. They never go back on their word. Dude, I want my politicians to go back on their words sometimes. I want them to adjust their way of thinking depending on, like, what happens in the world. Of course. If they say they're not going to raise taxes and all of a sudden we're in a giant deficit and we need money, raise them. You're an idiot if you don't. George H.W. Bush, you know, one of the most criticized moves and one of the greatest moves he did as a true American was to raise taxes knowing that it was near political suicide. He did it anyway because it was the right thing to do for the country. And so, oh, he's a flip-flopper. No, he cared about the country and he did what he thought was right. I brushed a girl out on the street. She said, have you got smoke or something to eat? She looked in a bus, found a matchbook. She said, inside my number, boy,
Those are some of the stories making headlines around the country and around the world this morning. But every day here on The Rachel Maddow Show, we do enjoy poking a sharp stick at the soft white underbelly of the right-wing scheme machine. Giving you a little peek at their political playbook. Today's underbelly tactic is rule-breaking by redefinition. Deciding not to actually play by the rules. Not to actually, you know, follow the law. Not to actually comply with Supreme Court rulings, say. Because you know that is very last century. That is so pre-George W. They recognize that other people think there are rules. They recognize that other people think there are laws. They just don't think they're obliged to follow them uh, at MaddowOnline.com this week, our website this week, a blogger whose name I can't tell you because our website is still down this morning, uh, but a blogger who has to, at least for now, remain nameless, posted a link to yet another one of Bush's signing statements uh, sent down this week on Tuesday where Bush said, hey, I am signing this bill about the Coast Guard. I'm just not planning on following it. I'm signing it. I just don't believe I'm bound by it. Still setting out those signing statements. They don't think the rules apply to them. Uh, This was spelled out as clear as could possibly be uh, when a Justice Department lawyer named Stephen Bradbury was questioned about following the law of war. Uh, He was questioned this week by Democratic Senator Pat Leahy. Was the president right or was he wrong? It's under the law of war. Was the president right or was he wrong? The president is always right. The president is always right. The president is always right. He said it. That's the Justice Department lawyer. That's the opinion of the Bush Justice Department. The president is always right because he's the president. And the the Congress, the Republicans in Congress, which theoretically under our constitutional democracy uh, is the organization that's supposed to provide a check and balance to the president to establish laws that the president then executes to hold the president accountable for following those laws. The Republicans in Congress are apparently all signed on to this Bush administration philosophy that the president is always right because he's the president. They have decided to abdicate the Constitution. The Supreme Court ruled two weeks ago that the Bush administration's kangaroo court tribunals at Guantanamo were illegal. They were against the law. Against, oh, the law, oh. It is not a complicated decision. Congress's response? You might think that they would want to, I don't know, come up with a new system for trying these prisoners. That's not against the law. That respects the Geneva Conventions, for example. Uh, but, oh, no, uh, Bush sent a Pentagon lawyer named Daniel Del Orto uh, to Congress to say, actually, what we would prefer you guys did is just let us keep doing the illegal tribunals. We're just going to keep doing the same illegal thing. But we just want to figure out a way to call them legal. Could we do that? This was the response from Republican Congresswoman Candace Miller of Michigan. Could it be as easy as what um, uh, Mr. Uh, Del Orto I hope I'm pronouncing your, right, your uh, name correctly, uh, has suggested that we actually just ratify what the executive branch and the DOD has done and move on. Ratify what they have done and move on. We will not change what we're doing, which has been ruled illegal. We'll just come up with a way to call it legal. This is what they're doing on the whole Geneva Convention policy, too. They fought for years to say that Geneva doesn't apply at Guantanamo. It doesn't apply after 9-11 anymore. They lost that fight. The Supreme Court said Geneva Conventions do apply. And their response has been to say, oh, well, actually, we've been in, con- we've been in compliance with the Geneva Conventions all along. What we've been doing, all waterboarding thing and all that, we've been, in, we've been in compliance with that. I don't know what you're talking about. We don't need a change in policy. 
Rule breaking by redefinition. Don't actually comply with the rules. Don't comply with the laws. Just redefine whatever it is that you're doing so that it sounds like you are. Presto, we're legal. We've decided to name this something else. We're calling it something new now. This is defiance of the Supreme Court. The only way they're going to be able to get away with this is if they can so denigrate the Supreme Court that people think that it's a patriotic thing to defy the court, even though that's not the way our government is supposed to work. The other way they'll be able to get away with this is if Democrats do not start calling the Republicans in Congress on this BS now. Republicans in Congress think that this is going to be some big winning issue for them this November, and Democrats need to get out ahead of that now and start saying, actually, there's a little thing called the Constitution that we would prefer to keep in force in this country. You could call it Sunday, maybe make it Monday, Monday at noon. But don't call on Tuesday. So the president was on the air today, uh, joining me here, by the way, Billy Kimball. A jubilant President Bush uh, brought us the good news this morning. That's right. Um, And uh, we'll play, Andy. Yeah. uh, uh, I want you to play. This is um, in the speech this morning. uh, The president said that the previous budget deficit estimate of four was four hundred and twenty three billion dollars. Now, this is three years in a row that they've beaten their uh <laughs> their uh overly pessimistic estimate that would have been the worst huh. deficit of all time 423 billion dollars yes and and they've learned something so that at this point in the year they can say we beat expectations yeah sure. it's been a good year managing expectations is is a uh, is a science now, did Carl Rove say this at the uh, Aspen Institute <laughs> Ideas thing that I missed no, that you but, went to? But, but Carl Rove had, had uh, gotten the news just slightly before he came on, and, and he was... Uh, gotten he was, the news about the increase in the revenue. The increase in corporate tax revenues, which we'll get into in a minute and, and, and explain. But, uh, uh, and he was also jubilant. Okay. And he got a round of... Um, uh, Polite applause <laughs> for that really? for that accomplishment. It was a funny crowd. It half of them applaud and half of them booed. It was like those crowds on The Simpsons that sort of turn on a dime. Wow. <laughs> okay. I, I see. I even like that part of it. So the, you, I've you know, arranged a special Aspen Institute surprise for you tomorrow. Uh, which okay. let's just tease our, for those our, our of listeners, series our of stories for, about how much fun Billy had. For our listeners, we had a vacation last week and. I did a, a certain number of family things that uh, I enjoyed and uh, and glad, get out of. Uh, I can, <laughs> and, and glad I did. And uh, Billy um, uh, and Alexander's yeah, you, wife went to the uh, Aspen. You skipped Sir Richard Dearlove explaining the Downing Street memo because you had some family stuff to do. Oh, <laughs> okay, so and Billy went to Aspen Ideas Festival and and. Had an amazing time, and not only that, uh, has been describing uh, the kind of thing I would very much have liked to have gone to. 
Okay, but let's let's uh, let's get back to uh, Bush today. Mm. So they they always they've done this thing for the last three years where they overestimate what the deficit is going to be, so that when they announce what it is, it can be what it really is going to be. It's good news. So here is Bush today. Your president, <laughs> our president, <laughs> explaining what the OMB is telling us our uh, deficit will be this year. Today's report from OMB tells us that this year's deficit will actually come in at about two hundred and ninety-six billion dollars. <laughs> you almost expected it here. Wow. Wow. Oh. And that's like one of those prices that they have at the supermarket, 296 because it sounds a lot better than 300 But here's the thing. <laughs> Let's play that again. I just love this because I love the applause. Today's report from OMB tells us that this year's deficit will actually come in at about $296 billion. That That's first president. clap, by the way, was, yeah. was Henry Paulson in the front row. Yeah. Now, by the way, is that President Bush speaking before the uh, members of the credit card industry? <laughs> <laughs> Play it again, because and then let me talk. Today's report from <laughs> OMB tells us that this year's deficit will actually come in at about $296 billion. Okay, I just want to uh, just tell the audience that that applause lasted. That you, you hear that, that quick fade there? Mm-hmm. That's because we got this audio from AP. That wow. was a seven-minute applause. That <laughs> was a, a standing ovation. $296 billion uh, is the fourth highest deficit of all time. Uh, the other three are all Bush. <laughs> <laughs> and number five is his father, which... Uh, by the way, uh, Clinton inherited. Right. Clinton okay. inherited at that time the largest deficit in history, but then, to be fair, George W. Bush hadn't had a chance to screw things up yet. Right. Okay. Now, I'm going to skip this next audio here, Andy, and I want to go to O'Reilly, this talking points memo. Sounds fun. Uh, I'm watching O'Reilly last night, and, uh, you know, I, I do this, like, I, I, I now have got it down to about, I can watch it for about a minute, and if something doesn't go, wah, 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 I just turn it off. Well, of course, it did. He did his talking <laughs> points memo, and he, he's he's talking about, uh, you know, I won't play the whole thing, of course, but we're going to analyze this. Uh, he, he talks about how Bush is, this is, this is an amazing success. Uh, the cutting the taxes has been an amazing success for the poor, especially. <laughs> so let's start. Play that first one. All right. All right. Now, a funny thing happened on the way to the bank. Those tax cuts for the rich have helped all Americans, especially the poor. <laughs> hmm. Okay. Now, poverty <laughs> has increased in this country every year under Bush. Mm-hmm. Every year. So that's just complete bull. Okay. Now, let's let's keep him going. According to the latest stats, tax revenues are climbing twice as fast as predicted, and the deficit is being sharply cut. That's because the so-called rich are making money in the stock market and other investments, and the government is taxing that money at a moderate rate. Taxing it at a higher rate discourages investment. Okay, so now he's going to basically, he's basically saying that this um, uh, this higher-than-expected revenue that's come in, which is basically from corporate taxes, and some from people uh, selling off their stock because of the cut in uh, capital gains and and, uh, dividends and stuff, Uh, that uh, this is because of the the tax cuts, right? Right. And uh, maybe maybe that last part is part of it, but that would be like a one-time only thing, Mm -hmm. probably. 
but and then he he's saying that a higher tax rate discourages investment, and so the problem is, of course, that during the the Clinton years, he increased the tax rate on the top, and we had eight years of expansion. But now let's know O'Reilly try to puncture a hole in that, and this is. Beautiful. Here come the stats. Oh, oh, this is just beautiful. Okay, let's play this. Want more proof? President Bill Clinton, you just saw him. He was a tax-the-rich guy in the middle of his two terms, 1995. Federal government took in $1.5 trillion in tax receipts. $1.5 trillion. Ten years later, 2005, the middle of President Bush's term, the feds took in $2.1 trillion, 40% more than under Clinton. Okay, now let's start everybody... Audience, let's start taking some. Al, I had to clean my refrigerator last night, and I missed O'Reilly. <laughs> um, <laughs> help me out. So is, is, how long does the president serve in office? Okay, well, this is very interesting, because <laughs> you say in he, you, I'll, you went right to. Something jumps out here. Something did me. jump out. He says so, in, the mi- in the middle of the, his two terms, he's talking about Clinton, 1995, the federal government took in 1.5 trillion dollars in tax receipts. Ten years later, 2005, the middle of President Bush's terms. Okay, now, hmm. that's interesting that there's ten years between the middle of their two. <laughs> See, because the president is has a four-year term, Billy. And that's true for both President Bush and President Clinton? Yes. According to scientists. Huh. Yeah. No, no, it's actually according to the Constitution. Huh. <laughs> and and uh, so what? what somehow... There's 10 years between the middle points of their of their two terms of each of their two terms, which so obviously 1995 isn't actually the middle point. Well, I, I'm no mathematician. Oh. I don't want to get into a, a dispute with with Bill O'Reilly about how long the presidential term is. <laughs> but, but, but let's just say this. Let's say you took uh, you compared the end of of Clinton's first term with the end of Bush's term. Well, then you'd have uh, now. Also, you there's something called constant dollars. Constant dollars. Yes. In other words, that sounds complicated. Can you explain that to me? Anna? Yes. There's something <laughs> called inflation. Right. Okay. In some years it's low, and some years it's higher. So, like for example, it you know it can be like during the the Carter years and during the uh, Ford years, it was double digit inflation. Uh, during the Clinton years and during uh, most of the Bush years has been fairly low, like two, three percent. Okay, on average. So if you're going to compare in a useful way, you'd want to you'd want to make an adjustment so that the dollar exactly. Are, I get it. Okay. Exactly. Now, can you guess what Bill doesn't do? Uh, Andy. Uh, he doesn't adjust for. Wait, wait. Infl- I know. <laughs> <laughs> All no, right, go ahead. Go ahead, Andy. Andy. No, it's fine, Billy. Go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. He doesn't adjust for inflation now. Yes. Yeah. So he says, now, he says that uh, in the middle of his two terms, 1995, he's talking about Clinton, uh, the federal government took in $1.5 trillion in tax receipts. Now, first of all, of course, again, as we pointed out, 1995 isn't the middle of his two terms. It's 1997. Uh, Ten years later, 2005, the middle of uh, President Bush's term, the feds took in $2.1 trillion. Uh, 40% more than, and he goes, 40% more than under Clinton. That's a big number. Yeah, except for the fact that, of course, it isn't. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, in 1997, uh, it was actually adjusted in $2,005. It was 
trillion, no, that's not 1.5. So it was 1.9, essentially. Hmm. Okay, this year is projected to be 2.153. Now, that is... Well, it, hold on, Al. That's still more. It is Good more. for President Bush. Well, except that here's Give one the thing. man some credit. At the end of uh, Clinton's, uh, in constant dollars, it was 2.3 trillion. Oh. And actually, it's gone down under Bush. Bush has not gotten to the same level as Clinton. So when you actually, it, it appears that when you cut taxes, you don't actually increase revenues. You almost decrease. <laughs> well, yes, if you're actually honest about the numbers. Thanks for listening, everybody. So I, I do most of my editing for the show over the weekend. And so what I've, what I've started doing every once in a while is I'll go down to this. Um, there's just a, a little cafe. Uh, I lovingly refer to it as the swanky joint because the first time I uh, ever went there about, she's uh, probably seven or eight years ago, we went in and I said, hmm, swanky. And my brother laughed and. So that's just what it's been dubbed. So I, I went down to the swanky joint and uh, take my laptop with me and get a little bit something to eat, a little bit to drink. And, um, and and then on Saturdays, they have musical groups come and play. And so I got there at, you know, some, sometime middle evening and the band was setting up and, um, so the uh, they they were setting up their equipment, but the lead singer was also kind of walking around, and uh, some of the people, you know, you could tell that some of the people who were there at the uh, at the cafe were actually there for the show. You know, they were actually fans of the band, and but not everyone, of course. And so he was handing out, you know, his little flyers, and he actually had some CDs made up and everything. So he came by and handed me a CD. And so, since I was sitting there with my laptop, I thought, hey, you know, what the hell, I'll pop it in. I, You know, the, the computer's working on uh, processing a, a clip I'm, I just edited, and I got a couple of minutes, so I can take a, take a listen, see, see how good these guys are. So I pop it in, and I start, start uh, skimming through some of the songs, and I, I get down, you know, a fourth song or whatever, and it sounds familiar. And so I, you know, I, I turn it up a little, per, you know, I perk up a little bit and listen. And I think, yeah, I mean, I've definitely heard this song before. And these guys are setting up their tiny little band in a tiny little cafe that seats like 20 people. You know, who are these guys and why have I heard this before? That's, that's pretty interesting. So a few minutes goes by and the guy's still kind of milling around and he's talking to people and he, he's not in the middle of a conversation for a moment. And I, I ask him, I say, Hey, you know, come here for a second. Uh, this, this song, it's called, Oh boy, is that, is that a cover song? And he said, no, I wrote it. I said, Oh, well, that's interesting because I, I've heard it before. I mean, I, I, I swear I've heard it before, but I have no idea where, I, I mean, I don't even listen to the radio. And he said, well, yeah, actually it's, um, you know, some of our songs have, have kind of started making the rounds. You know, we're getting played on the local 107 and, you know, 92.5. And, you know, and, and actually just recently, uh, you know, Playboy Radio and Maxim Magazine Radio picked up some of our songs. And so they're kind of making the rounds 
nationally. And I said, well, I mean, that's all good and, you know, fine, fine and good and everything, but I'm not kidding. I don't listen to the radio. Like, um, do, do you know what a podcast is? And he said, oh yeah, you know, yeah. So, so maybe you heard it, um, you know, cause it's on satellite. So, you know, obviously he doesn't know what a podcast is. And I said, well, okay, I don't know, but anyways, I, I, I've heard it before and, and I like it. It's, it's, it's pretty good. And so that was it, you know, I, you know, I, you know, he kept on and went, went back and was still setting up. And a few minutes later he comes back and, uh, is telling me that, oh yeah, you know, our, uh, the, a guy who s- sits in with us, uh, on guitar quite often, you know, that's actually his favorite song. And, you know, so we chat a little bit and I ask, so, are are you guys based in Sacramento mostly, or you know what what's your deal? He said, "Oh yeah, you know we, um, you know we we play up all around you know Sacramento, and we go up to San Francisco a lot, and um, you know rarely, but sometimes we get down to L.A. But we're based in Sacramento, and actually I live about three blocks from here, so uh, you know I, I we come down and play at this little cafe all the time." And I said, "Oh well, there you go. That I mean that's kind of cool." And you know, I, I had been listening to some of their songs and I liked the CD and the guy's local and lives right around the corner and, and I was chatting with him. So, the, you know, it was just, just kind of interesting. And I, um, you know, he goes and they're, they finishing setting up and, and they're getting ready to go and I'm still there just editing clips and everything. But then as they are, when they're really ready to go and all the band members are in place and you know, he's, um, the lead singer does the keyboard and he's got, you know, a couple of guitar players and the drums and then some stand up drums. Uh, and when I see him up there, everything kind of clicks into place and I realize, yes, I have heard this song before, but it was just like a month and a half ago in this little cafe. And I said, Oh, what a, you know, kind of an ass. I just made of myself making this guy think that he had been recognized from some radio or, Oh, poor guy. And actually the first time I heard that song, I I was there with a friend of mine and they were playing and she said, yeah, let's get out of here. (laughs) And so I didn't even hear the whole song the first time because we uh, walked out in the middle of the performance. So I was feeling a little, you know, ashamed and guilty, uh, although he never found out any of this and doesn't know any of the story. But uh, the the band that was playing all of the songs that you just heard in today's show are from that album that he gave me for free uh, just over the weekend. So this is my way of kind of uh, paying him back or... Uh, uh, clearing my uh, my conscience I guess you can say so they are they're linked on uh, on the website bestofleftpodcast.com go to the show notes of this or any other show any other recent show that's a little asterisk there uh, and and they're they're linked uh, so you can find out more about the band the guy's name is Scott West and the name of the band is Scott West and Sex on Sunday and they're a local Sacramento band who um, 
and the lead singer lives three blocks from me. And coincidentally, I actually really like a few of their songs. So I have no qualms about playing their music. And so that all worked out nice. While you're at the website, you can uh, go ahead and check out the uh, the section right there on the homepage listed under uh, support the show. There's all sorts of things you can do. I uh, do a terrible job of reminding everyone to check that out, but there's just a couple of little things that are really helpful. There's a sur- uh, listener survey that you can fill out. Uh, you can vote on Podcast Alley, which originally I said don't worry about doing that this month uh, because there were... Uh, bigger fish to fry, I guess you can say, but uh, that's all over and done with, at least for now. Uh, so you can vote on Podcast Alley. That would be greatly appreciated. If you would like to leave a review on iTunes, there's a link right there that uh, shows you exactly how to do that, and that uh, that's a huge way to get me a little bit more exposure in the iTunes music store because that's where everybody goes find uh, to find new shows and when you got a lot of reviews the people at iTunes notice and they stick your show higher up on the featured list and uh, you know post you on the home page or who knows what could happen but uh, all of those things uh, under the support the show section will uh, greatly help me and uh, support the show and promote the show in one way or another So thank you for all of your help, and we will be right back here tomorrow. Have a good one, everybody. Terrorism is the calculated use of violence or threat of violence to attain goals that are political, religious, or ideological in nature. It follows that the United States is a leading terror state. As the Bush regime continues its war on democracy, log on to thewarondemocracy.com to find out what you can do to fight back. The war on democracy.